Appreciate your attendance here this morning. It's good to look out and to see several visitors here with us today. And I hope the time we spend here together will be strengthening and beneficial and uplifting to all of us. We're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, looking at a story that I imagine is familiar to a lot of us here. In 2008, a small village in southwestern France called Sarperin faced a, a problem. They were running out of space, not in terms of housing, not in the retail district, not in City Hall. They were running out of space in the cemetery. They literally had no more room to bury anyone. And of course, unlike some of those other things, it's not as if you can decrease demand for a cemetery. Everyone's going to end up there eventually. They're just dying to get in. That's subtle. It's not that funny either. The town tried to purchase land adjoining the cemetery, but an administrative court ruled that they couldn't. And so with no other options, no way to expand, uh, no way to bury any more people, the mayor of the town did what politicians do. He passed a law. And the ordinance read, in part, all persons not having a plot in the cemetery and wishing to be buried in Sarperin are forbidden from dying in the parish. Offenders will be severely punished. Right. Everyone knew, obviously. That's a, a silly law. You can't stop people from dying just by passing a law. And in fact, the mayor himself was an older gentleman who passed away only about 10 months later. But what that reminds us of is our attitude towards death. We try to find ways to cheat death. We use all sorts of, of miracle creams, diets, drugs, contraptions, gizmos of all types. There are people I know that even try to, to eat right and to exercise to ward off death. I can't imagine such a thing. We grieve more seriously over the death of a loved one. We've all been there. And we've all probably known people who were so afraid of their own mortality, paralyzed by the thought of their own death, that they ceased to really live. And yet none of us can avoid death. All we can do is to determine what happens when it arrives. Well, in ancient Israel, the bodies of the dead were wrapped in cloth. The corpses were perfumed with spices. That was partly to honor the deceased. But to be frank, mostly it was to cover up the stench of decay that would soon set in. They didn't have any of the modern embalming techniques that we have, and so uh, those who passed were buried as quickly as they could be. Poor families would take the deceased out into a field and they'd drop the body into a hole dug in the ground. Wealthier families could afford to place the bodies in tombs, which were really just uh, caves carved out of the rock They'd roll stones over the entrances too. So John 11 and verse 38 basically informs us that Lazarus and his family were relatively wealthy. It says that Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 
it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. That's perhaps not surprising, because if you remember anything about Lazarus and his family, Mary and Martha, they did a good bit of entertaining, so they probably were relatively well-to-do. And most of us probably remember the context of this story. Lazarus dies. He's buried. He's begun to decay. And four days later, Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead. But there are a couple of oddities, strange things about this story that make it worthy of our interest this morning. The first oddity is that Jesus could have been there before Lazarus died. There's no mistaking the fact that Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. In fact, before Lazarus even got sick, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. Now, I don't know that every miracle or every healing of Jesus was planned in advance, prearranged. But this one, at least, was planned in advance. This was deliberate. Jesus anticipated this. You notice, before the disciples even knew that Lazarus had died, Jesus tells them in verse number 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. They think it's just good for him. He's recovering. It's good rest for the body. But Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Jesus already knew that Lazarus had died, knew he was going to die. And yet, in spite of that, when Jesus first receives news that Lazarus is sick, he didn't rush to his bedside. He waited for two days. You go back to verse number 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. He could have been there at the sickbed. And in fact, both Mary and Martha knew that if Jesus were there, he could have helped Lazarus. That's what they both say. They tell him the same thing. Verse 21, for example, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And you know what? They were right. He could have prevented it. At this point, at the end of his ministry, Jesus has already healed hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. They would have known that already, we have recorded for us, he'd raised at least two people from the dead prior to this point. And so the moment they realized that Lazarus' illness was so critical, they sent word for Jesus to come because they knew that if he were there, Lazarus would get well. He'd be healed. He wouldn't die. But Jesus did not come. And Lazarus died. We don't like that. We're not comfortable with that. There may be times when it feels almost like that in our own lives, as if we're waiting for Jesus to show up and he doesn't. We pray 
and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and it just feels as if he's not there. Like he didn't show up. Much like he didn't show up at Lazarus' bedside and allowed him to die and allowed his family and his friends to mourn. We don't like that. I want a God who will do what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, and how I want him to do it. And if God doesn't do that, well, then I think something's wrong. I want God to act on my terms. I'm, I'm hurting and I'm suffering. And when God doesn't act in the way that I think he should, I want to say like Mary and Martha, Lord, if you'd been here, none of this would have happened. Where are you? I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you, as some well-intentioned people do in moments of tragedy, that everything happens for a reason. I'm not going to tell you that. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that this was all part of God's plan. We have to remember there are other forces at work in this world than God. Forces that are opposed to God. And that's a battle going on that is inscrutable to us. We can't see it. It's wrong. It's misguided. It's not scriptural for us to try to attach some significance to any one specific event and say, well, that was just God's will. Might not necessarily have been. But we can take comfort from the fact that even those forces opposed to God, even those who would try to thwart his will, God is still in control. And he can take those things and use them to, in the end, bring about his will. God's will is going to be done one way or another. Things will work out for his purpose, even if we can't pinpoint each and everything and attribute it to him. And with that said, I can say this too. Some of our hurts are according to his will. It's kind of like having a fever. Everyone here this morning has had a fever at one point or another, probably several times in your life. And no one likes having a fever. You ache all over. You're hot and you're cold at the same time. You're shivering and yet you're sweating and you're, you're trembling and you're weak. And when we have a fever, we try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. We take a, a fever reducer. But a few decades ago, researchers started to discover that with mild or moderate fevers, it's actually just better for your body to let them run their course. It's part of your body's defense mechanism. It's part of the way it heals itself. It's boosting your immune system. It's depriving bacteria of the food that it needs in order to survive. Fevers hurt us. Fevers make us uncomfortable. But God provided those as a way to help heal our bodies. It's part of his design. I suggest that sometimes some of the bad things that go on in our lives, some of the tragedies that we endure, some of the griefs that we experience, is God doing just that. 
Sometimes God allows us to be uncomfortable. Sometimes extremely uncomfortable. And it's because he's trying to heal something or fix something. Or he's trying to bring about some greater purpose. That's precisely what we see going on here. That's what Jesus did for Lazarus and his family. He gave them a greater purpose. And that's easy for us to say with some distance, but when we're in the midst of our grief, we can't understand why in the world would Jesus wait for two more days? He had the power to intervene. He had the power to help Lazarus. And in the midst of our pain, it's easy for us to miss the bigger picture of what's going on here. Jesus isn't bound by death's timetable. Jesus isn't bound by death at all. We go back to verse number four. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says that the whole reason for this and the raising of Lazarus was to give God glory. It's in death that God does his greatest work. It's in facing death that Jesus becomes triumphant over death. This raising of Lazarus is one last chance, one time for people to see who he is and what he can do and to give God the glory before Jesus himself faces death and ultimately conquers death. But you see, as Jesus says, this doesn't lead to death. Death ultimately is not in control. Death might take its toll on us, but God ultimately is the one who will be victorious. We can confess, as David does in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Or we can think about Ezekiel, if you remember this story, Ezekiel chapter 37, and there's this whole vast valley of dry bones, skeletons stretched out before him. And God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, because of his faith in God, he says, Oh Lord, you know. Death can't stop God. Dry bones in the desert cannot stop God. He's not bound by them. God is not bound by death. And it's that faith that we have in God that allows us to trust in him and to rest on his promises even when we're in the midst of grief. It's that faith in God that allows us to confess, as Martha does in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world, even though death appears to have won the day. See, up until this point in his life, as far as we know, Lazarus was just a good friend, a close, personal friend of Jesus. We can look back and see everyone knew he was one of his closest friends when the sisters sent the message to him. They say back in verse number three, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But whatever he was before this day, afterward, Lazarus became a partner in Jesus' ministry. 
we can look down and see that Jesus, when he came to Lazarus, it offered him the opportunity to give the most powerful statement that he ever makes about his nature and who he is. We all know this, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And it's in just about a week that Jesus is going to prove that he is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life. He'd be arrested, tried, condemned, beaten, crucified, buried. But then on the third day, he would rise, prove that he had conquered death. Well, see, Lazarus is a sort of test run, a final proof, an opportunity for people to give God the glory and to show that Jesus is the resurrection and the life before he himself conquered death. And we're told, actually, because Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, verse 45, that many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. In fact, the effect of Lazarus' resurrection was so powerful, you look in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 9, that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is, coming to Jerusalem, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So when Jesus didn't come, when he didn't show up, it was for a greater purpose, to prove who he was, to show his power, to cause others to come to faith in him. But that brings us to the second great oddity in this story. This was all planned, all prearranged. Jesus knew that Lazarus would die. And what's more than that, he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet we find that familiar sentence, chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. He knew everything that was going to transpire. And yet he still wept. Why? Because God takes no pleasure in our suffering. Because even when it's for our own good, God doesn't want us to have to endure the things that we sometimes do. He hurts when we hurt. Those two words, Jesus wept, reveal a great deal about his character. For one thing, it reinforces the theme of his preaching. If there's one thing that Jesus talked about over and over again that would have stuck, that would have sunk into the minds of his listeners, it was how often he spoke about love, that God loved them, that to be his disciples, to show the world they were his disciples, they needed to love one another. So his tears here aren't fake. They're real. They're genuine. Everyone in the crowd recognizes that. In verse number 36, the Jews say, see how he loved him. Jesus weeping 
also demonstrates maybe more clearly than anywhere else in the New Testament his humanity. Jesus felt the confusion, the sadness, the bitterness, the very same things that we would feel when facing the death of a loved one. He probably could anticipate, he knew, the questions that were perhaps forming in Mary and Martha's mind. Why did he wait so long to come? Why wasn't he here? Did he really care? Did he even love Lazarus at all? Maybe some of those in the crowd who were skeptical of Jesus were thinking, well, he talks a lot about love, but he can't feel anything. He's all talk. It's not genuine. Jesus wept because he deeply cared for his friend and for Lazarus' sisters. He was hurting. He was suffering. And one could say, in fact, and I think this is a powerful thought, a comforting thought, that Jesus knows just what it feels like to go to the funeral of a friend, of a loved one. He's been there. He hasn't forgotten. He knows what we feel, and when we're hurting, he hurts right alongside us. We need to remember that. In his weeping, Jesus says, I know what grief is all about. And I know it wasn't meant to be like this in the beginning. Death is terrible. John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in all of Scripture. And invariably, if you take some random sample of people and you try to get them to quote Bible verses, someone, usually the class clown type, is going to say, Jesus wept. But you know, there's another verse of only two words in the Bible. Slightly longer in our English Bible, but two words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16. Rejoice evermore. And I'd submit to you this morning that those two verses are linked by more than the mere coincidence that they contain two words in English. It's because of John 11.35 that Paul could write 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's because Jesus wept that we can rejoice evermore. Because Jesus came to earth, we have reason to rejoice. He poured himself out into the form of a man. He became just like us with all our, our weaknesses, our imperfections, at least so that he can identify with them. He was tempted just like we are. He suffered just like we do. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He took his sins, our sins, on himself. He became obedient to death, death on a cross. And that gives us reason to rejoice. Paul talks about our own resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want you to notice how he begins here. I would remind you, brothers, 
of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Now look at the conclusion to this chapter and the whole point of all this. Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, we shall all be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took on human form, because he identified with us, because he walked and talked and lived and breathed, breathed and he died and was buried and was raised, we too have that promise of victory in him that Paul talks about. Lazarus is evidence of that power. He's proof. Jesus is the resurrection and the lie. Because Jesus wept, we have someone who can identify with us when we suffer. Because he wept, because he lived and died and rose again, we can leave suffering behind forever. And we can rejoice evermore. And the question for you this morning is really the same one that Jesus asked back in John chapter 11 when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I would urge you this morning, if you never have, to put your faith in Jesus, to turn to God in repentance, to be buried with him in baptism and rise up out of the water having that promise of resurrection, of being with God and not suffering anymore in his presence. Maybe you're here this morning. You already are a Christian, but you've stumbled somewhere along the way. You've forgotten this great gift that God has given to us in Christ. If we can help you in any way this morning, if you need to make changes at all, you have the opportunity to make your need known now while we stand and while we sing.